Our reading this morning is following on the series of man and woman from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those who are here in the auditorium. Welcome to those who are online. And welcome to Audine. Audine's a friend of mine. Um, Audine, why don't you introduce yourself briefly? You're a psychologist. I am a psychologist. I work at a local school, have been there on and off for the last 20 odd years before that. And partly through that, I worked um, and did child, adolescent, and family therapy for about 20 years. Okay, so you also worked with Anglicare? Yep. And you have a couple of teenage children yourself? I do, a son who's 17 and a daughter who's 15. So the topics we're discussing today are part of your family life and your professional life? Correct, every day, conversations every day about this, so yes. Absolutely, that's the world we live in. Well, here's briefly where we've been. Previously in this series, um, in the first week we saw that uh, God is the potter and we are the clay and God has shaped us and moulded us in a particular way. And so there's a fundamental question. Do we trust God? Do we believe that he has shaped us and our purpose flows from the way that he has made us? Or do we believe our cultural narrative of you can be whoever you imagine yourself to be? You're in control of your story. That was the first week. And the second week flowed out of that. If God makes a good creation and he makes male and female in his image, how are males and females similar? We're both humans. We're not dogs. We're not cats. We're not birds. How are we human, similar, and yet how are we different as two different kinds of the one being? And today? Today, Dave's asked me to help with the easy topic of gender and sex and the core of our identity. I'm saying that sarcastically. We have 20 minutes to cover a very complex thing um, that for a lot of people, I know this is, for some of you, a very personal and emotional thing. And I want to acknowledge that this is something that's hard for people to talk about and hard for people to hear. And I, for the majority of us, it might not be that way, but there are plenty of people that we know in our lives, whether it's us personally, people in our family, friends, that this is something that they wrestle with all the time and every day. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge uh, for those people here and who are listening, um, please take care of yourself. Continue to speak to trusted people. Um, about your questions and about the things that you have because I guarantee you we are not going to answer all the questions today. Great. Well, here's where we are going to go. Um, we'll begin with... Uh, generally looking at what the world is like that we live in today. And then behind that, what are the presuppositions? What are the assumptions that our culture now has? Because they're different from when I was young 
they have changed so quick and so fast. And we're going to look at the Bible's perspective, look at some examples in the Bible and a bit of systematic theology, what the Bible has to say about the topic. And that will then give us a lens to kind of say, well, are the assumptions of our culture all wrong or is there some truth there that we can affirm? Um, and if our culture has shifted, has the shift been in some ways perhaps insightful, but in other ways maybe we're losing something, we're, we, we're moving away from some truths. So hopefully by the end uh, we'll get to a point of a bit of equi equilibrium where we can see not only what the world is saying, but what God has to say about it too. All right, let me begin with uh, this young lady, Willow, um, Willow Smith, um, named after her dad, Will Smith. Um, and she made it into the press this week, probably onto the feed of many youth and young adults, perhaps not onto your feed, I don't know. Um, but she came out this week as polyamorous, which might be a new word to you, um, but uh, it comes from poly, many, and amore, which is love. And it means that you can have many lovers. Now, you might say, hang on a sec, I think we've had this concept before. We've just used other names for that. Um, but now it's been repackaged and it's a gender identity that you can choose. And she is choosing it. Let me highlight a couple of features of what she says. I feel. You now choose your, gender, your gender identity on the basis of your feelings more so than your thoughts. I feel like the main foundation is the freedom. Freedom is a great value. To be able to create a relationship style that works for you. You are now the creator and you get to create and your deciding factor is what works for me. That's how you make decisions. And if that's what's good, here's what you avoid, just stepping into monogamy because that's what everybody else around you says is the right thing to do. Part of how you know you're choosing and choosing for yourself is you actually reject the mainstream choices. You see those as a burden that other people are putting on you. Another example of the world that we live in today, uh, this isn't actually, I'm going to call her Nadia. It isn't actually her, but represents her. 15-year-old girl who's starting to explore her sexuality. So she has had a couple of different relationships over the last months, six to eight months, guys and girls. And in that, she's trying to work out where physical intimacy fits for her, how to find connection, how to have times of uh, intense relationship with people. Her struggle is as every relationship breaks up, she just feels rejection and she feels that she's unlovable and she continues to go through the cycle again and again, trying to work out where she fits in this world um, and how she's going to find love. Nadia or... Uh, our imaginary teenager, also has parents and grandparents. And they too are trying to make sense of this new world in which their children live because there's a gap. And sometimes parents, grandparents think, uh, well, we've got to do something, I've got to say something, and they find themselves in moments of awkward silence and it's kind of the elephant in the room and then every now and then they kind of, they speak and perhaps it doesn't quite work and they say something like, you know, um, when I was young, uh, we just did what 
what our parents told us and what the Bible says and what you're doing is wrong and you should just... Uh, and the conversation kind of breaks down and we go back to this awkward silence. So pull that together. Thanks. <laughs> so they're just a couple of snapshot examples of people, um, different experiences that we have in society at the moment. And this slide is just really talking about the emphasis that our society is really focusing on. Uh, the power and the right of personal choice over anything else. Individual freedoms are important. That exploration is actually not just a choice, but it's almost compulsory for you to explore your sexuality and expressions of that uh, for you to become a functional adult. Um, in the midst of that, we're also a society that says, but you've got to avoid disappointment and hurt as much as you can because we don't actually know how to deal with that thus creates an awkward silence because we've got people living in ways where they want to do all these things but I don't want to get hurt but I don't know how to talk about it and I don't know how to talk to people with questions. There's a lot of misunderstanding around the issue of our identity and how we grow as people as well as what sexuality and gender are, gender identity are anymore. Um, and we've become a world that people find it really difficult to connect. They find it difficult to actually be authentic with each other about real stuff. And so you know, in my world, for lots and lots of teenagers, part of what they're dealing with is this whole idea of I want to be real and authentic and, you know, as Willow says, to, to just make my own choices and place in the world. Now, that's a normal adolescent thing to do. We all, <laughs> at one time as teenagers, were finding our way in how to work out who I am. But they're living in a world now where most of their advice is coming from social media or other teenagers or people who... Uh, propose these freedoms without much understanding actually about what it means for you as a human being. So let's explore those freedoms just a little bit more. And Sigmund Freud is very important here. Yeah, thanks for giving me him. Everybody has heard of Freud and generally he's the father of psychiatry. hundred years ago, he came up with the whole idea that we as people live in a world uh, where it's either about personal tension or about pleasure. Now, he used the phrase that um, society is distorted a bit, but the idea that our sexual energy is where that tension is and that the release of our sexual energy is what brings us pleasure. Now, he meant in sexual energy in the sense that anything that brings you pleasure, but our society has decided to focus just on the sex word in that and narrowly associated it that way. So we now are left uh, socially 100 years later with this concept, and this is what lots of young people are trying to process, that it's actually unnatural and damaging for me to repress how I feel sexually and in regards to my gender. Another theorist or group of theorists that have influenced our presuppositions is Nietzsche, and if I could put up some others, I'd put up Marx and Foucault. And for these guys, um, history is the story of oppression. It's of a powerful group uh, oppressing um, victims. And in that story, uh, it could be male, female, um, it could be straight uh, versus gays, um, but society and religion as one of the voices of society um, holds on to its power and its emphasis is to kind of maintain its power and tell a narrative that is for the good of those who currently have power. 
And that leads to a kind of a critique that says, well, actually what we ought to do is we ought to throw that power off. And so stories about male and female as two binaries, well, we now think that's naive. That's a story we've rejected. Or marriage as a controlling thing, right? And this is part of what Willow was saying. Just because everybody else is monogamous, I don't have to choose that. I can be an individual. I can uh, reject. I can choose for myself. And she's rehearsing the themes of Nietzsche and Foucault and Marx without even knowing those names. Then a guy called Rousseau comes along, and he's a French Enlightenment thinker. And his next step to the puzzle is to say, yes, that's what happens, and what you need to do is you need to throw off those voices and influences of culture, and you need to express the true, the authentic you that you get in touch with as you look inside of yourself. And when you do that, that will be the path to fulfilment. Interesting, that was in the 1700s that thought first came around and we're still thinking like that today. So we're, uh, part of what is also going on in our society is the prevalence of science, which is wonderful. It teaches us a lot of things. Um, at the moment, in the last 10, 15 years, science has started to focus a lot more on trying to understand the whole issue of sexuality, sexual development, as well as gender identity and how that forms. Now, there... This, the research has only just begun and all the scientists and biologists involved will say the research has only just started. They're looking at brain structure, brain function, looking at hormonal processes in the body, receptive parts of your brain that deal with that, the size of them be between male and female, which parts of your brain are bigger and smaller depending on the gender, as well as looking at where that fits for people um, who aren't in those binary positions, so people who identify somewhere in the middle. And so science has actually identified that there is no such thing as a male brain and a female brain. There is a human brain that has characteristics of both. Now, depending where you are on the continuum, you'll have different features of that in your brain. So just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I have the same brain that functions the same as Marianne's brain. And we discovered that a long time ago <laughs> in terms of how we think about things and process things. We are, we are quite different. Um, and I think that's part of the rich tapestry. But society has made the assumption then that because science has made this one discovery and it acknowledges we're only just started understanding that, that, okay, that's the conclusion and that's how now things are. So that's the assumption that we're functioning on. Um, and part of then tying all those things together is the assumption across society that I think, you know, I've mentioned this before. To be authentic, I must express and explore my sexuality. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not being true to myself and I'm not living my best life. So, or there's some kind of technical names there that readers of history or psychology or philosophy will know, but your average teenager won't. But do those assumptions describe the sort of kids that are coming into your office um, at school? Yes, all day, every day, asking these questions, coming up in conversations. Uh, here's an example. I was seeing a student from junior school last week who when uh, we arrived in my counselling room, she said, oh, I'm really sorry, I forgot to ask you, what would you like me to call you? And I said, oh, Aldine is fine. And she said, oh, no, but are you a he, a she, a they, or a nondescript? And she's 11. 
website. Wow, it's a really interesting conversation. I didn't answer it, but that was a really interesting conversation. I went, wow, it's not just teenagers anymore. It is the world that our children grow up in, that all of their Instagram, if you have a look at the little tags at the top and in Snapchat, they'll identify, even writing on there, he, they, she, they, whatever they want. That's how I want you to identify me now. For this month. For this month, because it is transitory. So to be true to my sexuality, it might mean that I felt like that, but in three months' time, I might feel differently. So it is a very confusing time for a lot of people. So if that's the world that we live in, um, let me try and recapture that in our little diagram here. Uh, And so we have historically said, oh, we find our image and our identity in God, but I think what uh, youth and young people are hearing is, Who knows exactly what God says and thinks, uh, and which God are we talking about anyway? Um, But what they do affirm is that the church manipulates and abuses what God says for its own end, and so you cannot trust the church, and so you need to decide for yourself what you think is spiritual. They also say, and again, you can hear the echoes of Willow, that society breeds competition and comparisons and conformity and all of these things lead to inauthenticity and you're not being your true self. So don't listen to either of those. Instead, listen to your heart, to your passions, to what works for you and invent your own. Let's contrast that with some biblical values. And I want to begin here with the statement that we or I bear God's image more so than my own. The shape I am is because of how the potter has moulded me. Or if I think in terms of Genesis 1 and 2, um, we are but dust and we will return to dust and it's God's breath that actually enlivens us and makes us beings that are able to be creative and expressive, but it's God's breath that is the defining feature of who we are. And flowing out of that, our deepest desire as a creature is to know our creator, the one who has breathed his breath, his spirit into us. So when our spirit communes with his spirit, that is us being children of God. Um, one of the other things that the Bible speaks about is how, what happens to people who choose to live in an isolated way. So they withdraw from society for whatever reason or they're shunned from society for different reasons. Um, it's a pretty clear and consistent picture um, that we get ourselves into a bit of trouble. We become our own authority, we start to think our own things We don't necessarily reflect on other people's positions, but our own internal truths become louder and louder and louder, and that becomes then the authority on how we do things. And a small example of that uh, would be King David um, with Bathsheba. Now, while he was meant to be going off to war, uh, he chose to stay home and hang out on his rooftop, checking out another man's wife. Everybody knows how that story ends. Now, in that period of time, not once did he consult somebody else. Not once did he go to a trusted friend or, you know, um, any of God's people in the temple to say, I'm really tempted, I think I'm going to stuff this up. She's a really good-looking lady. 
Um, he then worked out a plan by himself in his own head how to get rid of her husband so he could have her. And so he's an example uh, with fairly tragic consequences, but an example of what happens when we just isolate ourselves from God's people. Um, And so, I mean, his example, and there are plenty of others, the Bible speaks in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It speaks about us being part of the body of Christ. It talks about the importance of us offering ourselves to God so he can renew our mind. Now, the inference there to me is when you don't, your mind gets distorted. So the less and less you engage with God and his word and his people, the more and more your mind will just carry itself away with its own stuff. Um, And so the biblical principle is we need each other to think this stuff through. We need each other to work this out because community is the place where we bounce things off. I mean, Dave and I have had plenty of conversations and differing opinions on this topic. But generally... It's been a really helpful thing, I think, for both of us to shape and sharpen where our thinking is about this. We need each other to grow. And we also have a cultural narrative that says that you can't trust church leaders. And there are actually plenty of examples in Scripture of church leaders who can't be trusted either. Jesus' crucifixion is organised by the leaders of the temple. But it doesn't lead the post-resurrected Jesus to say, you know what, leadership is bad, it's evil, it's dangerous, we should do away with it. Instead, he says to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Be an under-shepherd who shepherds and leads in the way that I lead. And so it's easy for us to be critical, but the biblical picture is that church leaders and the church body is there to nurture us and to protect us and to be a voice in our lives that encourages godliness. Uh, let me say something briefly too about sex in the Bible. Um, it's, uh, it's there uh, and the picture has two faces. It's a beautiful gift that God has given us and in its right place and time, it overcomes the vulnerability and the nakedness that is present between a man and a woman. And yet it is also this vice that can be abused with terrible consequences and all sorts of people have all sorts of temptations. Whether you're straight or otherwise, whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, there are people in Scripture who are tempted and who fall uh, and who Satan uses this beautiful gift of spirituality as a way of drawing them away from God. I would, if I was running a seminar and the lights were up and I could actually see your faces properly, at this point I'd say, put your hand up if you've never struggled with a sexual sin in your life. (laughs) And I'd get that response. I wasn't putting my hand up. Most people don't want to acknowledge it. But it is, so I just wanted to add on to something that Dave was talking about. It is actually the essence of so many social issues that we have. Um, so of, for just as a simple example, fractured families. So of the divorce rate that we have in our country, 70% of divorces end because of extramarital affairs. And they're married people who are meant to apparently have really happy sex life and find fulfilment of it in each other. That's the biblical principle but it's not what we do to ourselves. And so that's the bit where 
Um, you know, we don't need to talk about the number of teenage abortions and things going on in this country um, as a reflection of this, that we've got sex wrong in lots and lots of ways. Um, and it's a reflection of how far we fell, really, when Adam and Eve represented us, but we've all done it ourselves and to ourselves. We've fallen far from God's plan and intention for us. And society has chosen to, at the moment, and for a lot of teenagers, to make sexuality and gender the topic on how you define and work out who you are. Now, when we go back and look at the Garden of Eden, we don't see God telling Adam and Eve that that's what makes them who they are. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. And so part of what we um, are seeing across the pattern of the Bible is that as Dave said, sex is good, it, people, we also stuff it up. But our bigger picture, why Jesus came for each of us, why he declares that he loves us, is because it's actually about us re-engaging back with God. And one of, sort of what fits in there is one of my favourite passages in the Bible, is in John 8, when the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, thrown at his feet, and they go, what are you going to do with her? And so Jesus said, you know, starts drawing in the sand and, whoever's innocent, you can chuck stones at her, kill her. And then he just draws in the sand and they all disappear because everybody goes, yeah, I've sinned too. So while society and the church, I think, we're real, we've been really good at doing this and I think it's left us in a pretty tricky position at the moment for our young people not having a space to be able to talk about these issues, we as a church for centuries have been really good at not talking about sex um, and not being open to have difficult conversations about what that means for us personally, um, it means there's this massive vacuum. And so it's very hard for people now, and if this is one of their big wrestles in where they're at with God, how do I move forward with this? How do I actually get answers to these questions that I've got? And society sort of jumped into that space that we've left a big hole in. <laughs> and so lots of our young people, and it, well, not even just young people, I actually think it's for all of us, we're actually all got questions and not really sure what we think and how we feel and what we need to do about it. And the big biblical value that we, I want to push across is Jesus loves each of us for who we are, designed and made who we are, but he died so you could have a relationship with him. Who we are is so much more than who I'm sexually attracted to or how I identify. There's so much more to each of us than that. And so... While I, aren't, I am not living the life God intended in the garden, I have the blessing of, of Jesus dying for me that says now every day I get to work on getting my relationship with God back on track and getting thinking more like him and being more like him. So as I've tried to capture this in a picture during this series, we're created in God's image. It's his shaping of us. It's his breath. We're created for community, but we don't get to define that community. Um, it's the body of Christ that shapes us. Um, so does that mean the world got it all wrong, Ord? Um, is there some... Because there was quite a gap there between the biblical values and the things our current world is saying. Are there some things about what society is saying now that we actually want to say they're kind of half true? Absolutely. Well, they're fully true, but it's not the whole picture. So yes, I'm in the top point there. We are created as sexual beings, 100% absolutely true, yes. There is no question or doubt about that. Um, 
our world um, chooses to focus on, well, that's going to define me. And I would like to say that the part of the picture that the world is not telling us um, is that God actually has a plan about our sexuality. It has a, he has a plan for us uh, that involves who we have sex with, when we have sex, how we have sex. Um, and it's part of our job with each other is to have conversations about that and to work those things out. But I think society's got half the picture about the sex is good and, yes, we're designed to have sex. They're just trying to leave God out of the picture. Yeah, I think another part of the story society tells is that we are social beings and so Willow wants to have some relationships, but she wants to be in control um, and a relationship is something that you're in and it's a place where you get to express yourself and it's a place where if the relationships are no longer beneficial or a net positive outcome for you, you move on to a group that is. Whereas the Christian picture of, of community is that we don't so much express ourselves in community, but we rather find ourselves by sacrificing and giving ourselves to others. And that's the way that we are, ourselves are found as Christ gives himself sacrificially to us. And so there's been an inversion there that we've lost. One of the things that I think Willow's quote and plenty of others picks up, and you probably find this uh, a lot as you speak to young people, um, is the whole emphasis now on feelings and intuition that um, somehow um, and over a period of time it's become however you feel, whatever you feel is actually way more authentic and more important for you to listen to and follow than perhaps what you think or what your conscience is saying. Now... Decades ago, um, our society struggled with accepting that feelings are actually even valid at all. We were very much in our head, intellectual, uh, just rationalise everything and be all logical and that's, that's just how you've got to live life. So I like that the pendulum's come back because I, was, I don't think it's healthy for us as people um, to ignore a big part of who God made in us. Um, so... Yes, I absolutely affirm. Feelings and intuition are important. They are a big part of what God uses to uh, work with our conscience. It's part of how uh, we identify when we've actually stepped over moral lines or values that we've had when we've uh, lived outside our own value system. God uses our conscience. His Holy Spirit prompts us and pricks us for that. And so our feelings and uh, intuitions are enormously important as we work out who we are and how we function in the world. Um, it's just not the authority and it's not the only thing that we should be listening to. Let me also say that um, it, our culture teaches us to uh, yearn for and believe we'll be satisfied in a sexual relationship. And some of that is true. That is part of what God has designed. Although I'd want to say that um, there's a difference between being happy and content and what you see in Hollywood sex or what people write up on their social media page, not that I read them, um, but we, we have a fantasical expectation about what uh, physical pleasure is supposed to be like. Um, I want to say to parents, part of what you need to do for your children 
is you need to model that as a husband and a wife who are in love and committed to one another, that you find sexual contentment within your marriage and within your partner. And that's a great thing to be able to model to your children, that you can trust God's plan and God's plan brings a joy into your life. Having said that, uh, we also used to say to our children when they were young, um, and they would talk about, when I get old, I want to get married too. We would also say, what if God's plan is that you don't marry somebody, that you have the gift of singleness? And we can't set an expectation that somehow I will be fulfilled if I find this sort of a sexual relationship, and if I don't, boy, I've missed out. God offers so many blessings and opportunities for us to give and to serve and to grow. And some of us may find that in um, our personhood being expressed in marriage, but others don't. And you don't get the sense that Jesus and Paul are not less than because they don't have sexual expression. Or the widows in the book of Acts don't need to get married again, but it's actually in serving the Christian community where they get to express some of their female maternal instincts and be a blessing to others. So, uh, what have we lost? If we can affirm some things that our culture has got half right or told part of the story but not the whole story, what are the big themes that are kind of missing in our culture? And we've covered this a little, but let's just kind of say some of them again. Sexuality is best practiced within an exclusive, safe, other person-centred male-female relationship. And this really is a question of trust. Do you trust that the creator who has designed and shaped us as his creatures, tells us how it is that the gift he has created is to be best enjoyed. Do you trust him or do you take the view that actually I can't trust God, somehow I'm going to trust myself and I'm going to tell my own story because I know myself the best? Um, it's a pretty simple question when you boil it down to that. On top of that, one of the other enormous vacuums in our social conversation at the moment is talking about the impact of the choices that we make. I would find it interesting to sit down with Willow, if she was willing to be this vulnerable, and say, but what do you lose when you live like that? What's it cost you personally? And I have not, in 30 years of doing this practice, have not ever met a person who hasn't regretted something that of a sexual choice that they've made, um, who lives outside, she wouldn't, Willow wouldn't word it like this, but living outside God's plan, it wounds us. It eventually eats away at our soul in one way or another. And I think we don't talk about that. And so while we wrestle with uh, the whole male, female, we'll do it like this, well, what about the people in the middle? They have their struggles too. I actually think we all have struggles with this. I actually think we all struggle with trying to work out how do we do this well in the way that God intended. Um, I'm constantly dealing with uh, supporting children who live in homes, married homes, um, where they reflect, I think, one of the greatest issues in, our, in Australian society at the moment is the abuse of power within a marriage. So part of what's lost when we uh, don't live the way God intends is that we distort all the things about it. And that includes even in relationships that we seem as being 
ordained by God and approved by him is that people aren't living it out within that context very well either. And so it might not be that uh, a husband is beating his wife, but it may be that he is more controlling and demanding of sex. I want sex and it's happening now because that's your job as a wife. Um, and I have heard plenty, plenty of Christian women speak about that being their whole sexual experience for their 50, 60 years of married life. Um, I find that tragic because I'm not actually, I don't think that's what God intends. And so I think for all of us, you know, that whole what is lost, it's more than just the male-femaleness. It's so much complexity in terms of how we relate to each other. Um, and that brings us to that next point. I think it's really important that we all um, realise that when we want to work out who we are and who am I meant to be and what makes me me, the answer's right there with God. So the more you are with him, spend time with him, know him, reflect his character, the more you'll actually be the real you that God meant for you to be. And whoever you're with, whether you're married, single, whatever struggle you have, deciding whether you're bisexual, homosexual, what do I do with that? If you're a married person attracted to somebody who else is married, you've got all these things going on. If you're just drowning in pornography in your life, whatever it is, every other relationship is so secondary to your relationship with God. So if you want to work this stuff out, and, it, and it, I'm not saying it's, magically all of a sudden really easy then it may well be struggling for the rest of your life but the struggle is easier when we actually walk with God through those things and walk with other Christians um, and so if I can kind of pull those together you are shaped by your creator and the way he has molded the clay you are shaped by the community that you are part of, and you are shaped by your inner passions. Let me use some different words for that. Your identity is spiritual, that is uh, your relationship with God. Your identity is social, that is with other people. And your identity is psychological, what's going on inside your head and your heart. And what our culture is currently saying is your identity is primarily psychological who you imagine yourself to be you go and become that person and you will be fulfilled and I want to say God has made us psychological beings with passions and desires and they aren't necessarily in and of themselves wrong when we idolize them they become wrong but the bigger shortcoming of what our world is saying is what it's not saying that is your identity is spiritual and social and psychological it is not just psychological and part of what you need to do uh, just to come back to what all was saying earlier is we need to remind ourselves that self-control is a virtue that um, part of what we need to do in marriages and in relationships is think how is um, sexuality and how is um, being a husband or being a wife how how do I express that as a gift? My body's not my own, it belongs to my partner, right? How am I a gift to the other? And at times that will mean self-control. And our culture says, you know, look, if, you, if you're getting pleasure, that's a good thing and that brings fulfilment. But there are times where actually saying no to yourself or saying no for a season or whatever, it, it's a growth opportunity. Um, having everything you want actually doesn't make you happy. Um, there's something about self-control that is a virtuous path 
and we've lost that in our culture. Let's move to our uh, new equilibrium. Um, so, humans risk idolatry. Part of being a creature is that you live for something. And in the Old Testament, it was idols. And we kind of go, oh, how stupid was that? Um, and, and we don't operate in those ways, and yet we do. We create something and we live for it and we use it to displace God as the thing that we most worship. And what our culture is currently doing is it's worshipping sex and identity that I get to choose. And yet, that doesn't always deliver. Um, if you quickly think about what idols you have in your life, the most common idols at the moment are things like uh, money, uh, possession, status, things like that, entertainment, sitting around and going, what is it that consumes all my thinking and my time, is how am I going to be entertained and stimulated? Um, even things like comfort, just living every day looking for ways to make my life easier, looking for things that comfort me and bring me comfort. I am sure all of you would identify that probably for your young people in your life, the technology in their phone has become their idol because they can't live without it on their person attached to them all the time. Um, part of our innate nature is that we are made to worship. It's part of how we express who we are. But the problem with idols is that they pretend like they're going to actually meet a need that we have, but they don't. They fall short. And so part of the heart's desires that we have that are good and right end up getting sidetracked and distracted with something else. And so we end up going around and around and around, particularly in regard to uh, uh, sexual expression and gender, thinking this is the answer, this is the answer, this is the answer. And yet at the end of the day, in the quietness of people's hearts, they go, something's missing. I oh, know, I'll just try another partner. Or maybe I'll try a different gender. Or maybe I'll try a different... Maybe I'm not gay. Maybe I'm bisexual. Maybe, And so we just have a world that continues to pursue and chase and pursue and chase because these idols um, don't, cannot fulfil what they promise. Uh We've said this, um, sex uh, is a gift and there is something beautiful about enjoying it, um, but we also need to have self-control. Um, and our deepest urge, here I want to push back against Freud and his prevailing assumptions in culture, um, our deepest urges um, are not sexual, but they are kind of not unrelated. It's a desire to know and be known but ultimately by God. So in uh, Ecclesiastes, in that passage about, you know, uh, things come and things go and there's a time for this and there's a time for that um, and there's a time for chasing after this and, and yet we have this innate sense that life is bigger than just what I'm consumed with at the moment. God has placed eternity, eternity in the heart of each of us and we, we are unsettled and unfulfilled when we're trying to fill that gap, that God-sized gap in our life with some idol. Um, take some time this week, go and read Psalm 139 again in the context of what you've heard today. Um, it speaks directly to that idea that we long to be known. 
God, you have searched me and you know me. What does it mean to actually be known? Not, oh, God could name me and what I look like and where I was born and blah, blah, blah. Not like people know us. God knows us. Before we were born, he made us and he knows the everything about the essence of who we are as people, uh, intentionally made that way. And they're from creation, I mean, that's part of being human is we have that desire that somebody will see me, everything about me for who I am and love me exactly the way I am. And that is what the gospel is all about. In the depth and magnitude of your sin, Jesus says, I see all of you and I love you and I die for you. Struggles with sexuality are not new. (laughs) Uh, And one of the reasons that we have some hang-ups in the church is because we inherited them from a guy called Augustine who gives potency to the concept of original sin. The fact that kind of medieval Catholic theology thinks that sex is dirty has to do largely with Augustine. He's a man who, before he was a Christian, um, had a mistress. Uh, He then put off his mistress when he became a Christian and lived a celibate life. And you can just hear, and you can read if you want in Augustine's Confessions, his struggling with his sexuality. And I want to close with a beautiful quote from Augustine. And he says this, Because God has made us for himself. That's the way that you've been shaped. You are incomplete. You desire to be known and to be in an intimate relationship. And we search for that. We are restless um, in and of ourselves because God has designed us to only be completed when we are in him and in his body and in his family. And that is when we find ourselves. And what our culture says is, yeah, actually, we can substitute that and we can take that innate feeling that many of us have and we can fill it with a different formula a formula of um, I'm in touch with my passions and my desires and that will fill the restlessness. And yet we see a culture where sexual violence is on the increase. Actually, somehow sexual liberty is not leading to greater fulfilment and safety. It's actually leading to greater abuse and vulnerability. And the answer instead is to go back to God and say, God, what are your plans? We trust you. And ultimately, whilst it's a beautiful thing, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who loves, that you're a God who moulds, and that you know us and that you give us some clues about what it means to be creatures made in your image and to find the fulfilment um, and the expression of who you've designed us to be. And as we've listened to both your words and the thoughts of our culture, help us to see the points where we've perhaps moulded some of our culture's thinking into the scriptures and into our lives in ways that are unhelpful. Help us to be able to, uh, to put that thinking off. Um, 
Help us to see the times where we've told ourselves half-truths like David did on the rooftop. Um, and we've isolated ourselves from you and from your words and your community and your people. And help us to be honest and genuinely authentic um, in that we become vulnerable again with you and with others and can be more honest with ourselves. But we also thank you, God, that you have created us to enjoy us and you have given us some beautiful gifts that enrich our experience of being human, of being male, of being female, of being created image bearers of you. And we pray that we might enjoy your gifts in the ways that you have intended and in ways that brings honour and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.